0: But I've been asked tonight to do a, a study of the synagogue. Uh, there are some questions uh, that people wanted to know about uh, as far as the synagogue was concerned, as far as how did it come about and what was it like and, and uh, what was its worship like. And I think we will find this to be a very interesting study. And although we won't be honestly using any scripture tonight, Uh, because it's just not that type of study. I do think there's some information that will be helpful to us because it's important we understand what the synagogue was all about because it certainly was a part of Jesus during his lifetime. And as we just finished a discussion on the book of Acts on our Sunday morning morning sermon series, uh, Paul oftentimes went to the synagogue uh, to do his preaching. Uh, Whenever he would arrive in a town, even if it was a Greek town, uh, he, the first place that he would go would be to the synagogue. So I think it would be helpful if we have a greater appreciation about the under, uh, about our understanding of the synagogue. So uh, when you see such passages as Jesus returning home to his hometown and he goes into the synagogue there and he reads the scripture and he says this has been fulfilled uh, in your sight, you need to know where he was at when he said such a thing. And um, this, I just think this will be a helpful study even though Uh, It is not a study of a particular text, that type of thing. Well, how did the synagogue come about? Well, most historians believe, and no one knows for sure because this happened so long ago, but most historians believe that after the Babylonian captivity, when Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem in 608 B.C. and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and finally destroying all of it uh, a little bit later on, including the uh, temple, Uh, and then you had this mass deportation of Jews uh, in the land of Babylon, they realized for the first time in their life that they didn't have a place to worship any longer, uh, that the temple was gone. Now think about the implications of that. First of all, from the time that they left Egypt until the time that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, uh, the people of Israel always had a place to worship. It began with the tabernacle that was constructed in the wilderness according to the plan of God, and that tabernacle uh, went with the Israelite people during all the time they were in the wilderness, including the 40 years they were wandering. And then when they got to the promised land, that tabernacle was set up once again as a place of worship. Uh, later on, it was moved to, to the city of Shiloh, and after David died and his son Solomon became king, uh, God's... Temple was finally built, and that was the structure, Solomon's Temple, that existed until it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. So you've got a quandary that the people of God now have. They do not have a place to worship. Um, They don't know how to deal with the situation. And uh, we discover, as you remember perhaps when we were studying the book of Ezekiel, that the people who were living in Babylon began to start gathering by the river. Uh, to pray and to study. And um, Ezekiel makes several references of this, but evidently the, B- the Babylonian River was a place that became known as a gathering place for the Jewish people to pray for their nation, pray for their people, to pray for their return during the seven year- uh, 70 years of being in exile. And before long, um, it became a situation that became an appointed time. It became not only a time during the week when people gathered together, but there became a specific time, uh, a weekly time on the Sabbath, where they would get together, gather there at the river, if you will. Remember the song, Shall We Gather at the River? Uh, they gather at the river for a period of prayer and Bible study. Um, Keep in mind that in the Babylonian captivity, there were still prophets, and Ezekiel being one of them, And the Bible talks about how that the church fathers would come to Ezekiel for instruction and that type of thing. And, of course, Ezekiel would appear uh, there by the river uh, to do some of his crazy uh, word pictures, if you will. Uh, But my point is, when they were in Babylonian captivity, they began to meet at the river. And for long, that progressed into what we might call a weekly service that people began to be understood that they would attend. Well... Don't know how long that transpired in the 70 years they were there, but somehow or another, uh, this became be known as the synagogue. Now, synagogue is a Greek word that just simply means congregation or gathering. Uh, this was a gathering of God's people. Uh, the Hebrew word is kineseth. it means the exact same word, but synagogue is the word that we refer to in the uh, Bible because it's the Greek uh, version of the Hebrew word. But it just simply means congregation or gathering, and so people when they originally started talking about the synagogue, they were say, Are you going to the gathering today? Are you meeting with the congregation today and originally it meant the group of people that were meeting by the Babylonian river, and uh, that was particularly the idea. well, the longer they stayed there in the in captivity that uh, this became more formalized and became more structured, it started turning. Uh, into a worship service, and people understood and started appreciating the fact that uh, they needed to attend uh, the synagogue because, or the gathering, or the worship, uh, because there was nothing else they could do. That the temple was gone, they couldn't offer, they couldn't have sacrifices anymore. But they could get together and they could pray, which was very necessary, and they could get together and learn as much as they could about God's word. And while they had prophets there, the prophets could also inspire, uh, by inspiration, could teach them some other things too. Well, at the end of the captivity period, we have a Persian king by the name of Cyrus who allowed the people to return to Jerusalem. And when they returned to Jerusalem, he allowed them once again to build a temple. But the idea of the synagogue followed the people to the city of Jerusalem. And so you have people in the city of Jerusalem, and you have people who remain in captivity, not in captivity, but decided to remain in the original land of captivity. They decided not to return. That was now their home, and so they stayed in Babylon. And so you had this dichotomy started to, to, to exist. You had the temple that was built in the city of Jerusalem, and the Jews would go there for sacrifices, and they would go there for feast days but at other times they would meet in a synagogue or a gathering. And so you had the Jews in Jerusalem who went to the temple, but they also now continued to go to the synagogue because that was something that was kind of instilled in their minds when they were in the land of captivity. Uh, Children who were raised during that time period understood that their family went to synagogue or to the gathering or to the congregation, and that carried over when they came to Jerusalem. The people who remained in the the nation of Babylon, of course, were too far away to go to the uh, worship in Jerusalem, so they continued the synagogue practice there in Babylon. So you had this uh, idea of uh, things continuing. You had the temple continuing with its feast and with its sacrifice, and you had the synagogue continuing with its prayer and with its Bible study. Well, time went on and this idea of the synagogue began to spread through the nation of Israel and it got to the point that someone, I don't know who decided it, but someone decided that if there was at least ten Jews in a certain area uh, that they should form a synagogue or a congregation. You may remember when we were studying the book of Acts, that one of the things that uh, was made mention that uh, there was not a synagogue in a certain town because there was not enough Jews there. The rule was that there was at least ten Jews and a congregation or a gathering could be formed and a synagogue could be uh, conducted. And so uh, synagogues began to spread all over the Jewish nation. And um, before long, after uh, just simply getting together, together in a certain area, they began to actually start renting buildings or purchasing their own property and building buildings that would be used as their synagogue or a place where the congregation met or the gathering of God's people together. And that's, once again, what I told you before. It's just simply uh, what the word synagogue means. Well, as these buildings were built, they started following a particular pattern as far as how uh, the synagogue was set up. Almost every synagogue, and even the ones that they have excavated and understand what it was like as far back as they can go back, basically a synagogue was a building that had within it rows of pews and would have either a slightly raised area or maybe not a slightly platform area, but it also would have a pulpit. There was a row of chairs or places to seat. There was a pulpit at the front. There were some seats like what we have right here, that were known as the chief seats, which Jesus, of course, has some things to say about when it comes to the Pharisees desiring the chief seats. But uh, these chief seats known as the chief seats were where uh, some of the dignitaries, and I'll tell you more about that in just a moment, that were a part of presiding in the synagogue. Also in the synagogue, there was something known as the Ark. Uh, uh, the Ark maybe was symbolic of the Ark of the Covenant, but... Uh, Maybe it was just simply called the Ark because it was a container that held things. And what it held was the scrolls. You remember how long ago that people didn't have a Bible like this they could carry around and most certainly didn't have a phone or some type of uh, iPad they could put their scriptures on. But every single book of the Old Testament was in a scroll. And so located in these um, synagogues, you would have uh, places for people to sit, you would have a pulpit area, you would have the chief seats in the pulpit area, and there would be something called the Ark that would carry all the different scrolls of the Old Testament. More than likely, most churches didn't have, or most gods didn't have all of the scrolls, but they would certainly have the law and a number of the major prophets such as Isaiah and Jeremiah. Well, this continued to go on until... Uh, there became what you might call an organization of the synagogue. Uh, after a while, we know from even synagogues today, and tracing back the, the uh, system of the synagogue, going back as far as we can, uh, the synagogue began to be set up like this. At the head of the synagogue were the elders, And it's interesting that the word that is used for elders in the Greek, as far as the synagogue is concerned, is the exact same word that's used for elders in the church, presbyteros. And these were the men that were in charge of the management of the local um, congregation of the Jewish people there or the uh, synagogue of the people there. Uh, They were basically the leadership of that particular area, and they dealt with the management of that synagogue and dealt with any issues that may come up in that synagogue and whatnot. Underneath them was someone that was known as the ruler. Uh, The ruler of the synagogue, and you'll read about this in the book of Acts, but the ruler of the synagogue was a man that was appointed by the elders uh, that was in charge of the worship service. Uh, He really wasn't a preacher so much as he was more like a deacon, the deacon in charge of the worship service. He was the one who made sure that uh, the worship service was performed in a certain kind of way, that everybody had their own type of uh, assignments, that if someone wanted to speak, they had to get permission from him first, or he had the opportunity if he would like to go and appoint someone to speak, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But you had the elders of the synagogue, and you had the ruler of the synagogue that was in charge of the worship service itself. And then you had uh, a man that was known as a servant or a deacon who was in charge of the maintenance of the synagogue. Uh, A long time ago, they didn't have electric lighting like we have. Um, uh, They had candles and lamps and that type of thing. And so the deacon of the synagogue or the servant of the synagogue would be the one who would get there early. He would make sure all the lamps were lit if it was a dark day or night. And he would take care of things and making sure that the maintenance of the building that was a part of their synagogue would be taken care of. And I think you can see kind of a little, uh, uh, some similarities here, and I think that's important. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But only did you have an elder and a ruler and a deacon, you also have it in in the synagogue, someone who is known as the delegate. And the delegate was probably the one that's closer to what we would call a preacher or an evangelist today. Uh, He, of course, was not evangelistic and going out and trying to proselyte Jews because people were Jews by nationality. But he was the one who was the main reader of the Scriptures. He was the one that basically uh, was uh, making sure that God's Scripture was read in the synagogue and it was the appropriate Scripture for the time. A little bit later on, as time progressed, uh, rabbis were introduced into the synagogue system And a rabbi was just originally just simply a Bible class teacher. Uh, They would have Bible classes sometimes before a synagogue worship service, and they would have sometimes Bible classes after a um, synagogue service. And the rabbi would be the one who sat down with the people who were interested in studying God's Word, and they would open up a scroll and turn to a certain passage, just like we do with our Bibles today, and that rabbi would teach the Bible class. As time progressed, especially during the time of Jesus, it progressed to the point that these different rabbis and these different synagogues, especially ones in major cities, would have their own religious schools. In fact, um, there in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9, when the issue of divorce came up, there were two main rabbis that had different, differing views in their school of religion, and some people think that they came to Jesus with this question to see which side of the rabbinical school would Jesus pick about what Moses meant when he said you could divorce your wife. But you had these uh, rabbis that would uh, teach Bible class and would conduct religious schools, and they also would be the ones... Um, This especially happened after 70 A.D. when the temple was gone again, but they would be the ones who would perform weddings and funerals. So you had the rabbi. And then the last group of people in a synagogue, as far as any kind of official church duty, was the almoners. And the almoners were a group of people that were in charge of the alms of the church. Uh, People were expected to give alms or contribute their income, if you will, uh, to the synagogue. And the reason why this was important was because uh, the synagogue now consisted of a building that had to be paid for. There was taxes that had to be paid for as far as that building and the property. There was money involved uh, with, as far as the upkeep of the building. And so it was important that, uh, that there were alms given for the support of the synagogue. And so you had a special uh, man or several men that were known as almoners. Uh, that were charged, that were in charge of the contribution, if you will, uh, there in the synagogue. So basically, by the time that Jesus um, lived and kind of progressed a little bit more after his time period and Paul's time period, but basically during this time period, you had elders, uh, you had a ruler of the synagogue, uh, you had the delegate, you had the ri- rabbi, and you had the servant, and you had the almoners. And they were the main leaders who were a part of the church. And as you read through the book of Acts, you'll uh, see references to the elders of the synagogue or the leaders of the synagogue. You'll see references to the ruler of the synagogue. Uh, But these other men, of course, were a part of it. And, of course, we've heard the term rabbi many times as we discuss the life of Jesus. But all rabbi simply meant was he was a master teacher and thus the idea of having Bible class. Well, as time went on, the worship service of the uh, synagogue developed into something that was known throughout all the synagogues. I'm not sure how it came about. i do not sure what information was passed, but the rule finally became that if you went to a synagogue in one area, you'd find the same worship service as you would if you went to the synagogue in Jerusalem and so on and so forth. It became very uh, similar and very much the same. But the worship service in the synagogue was always began uh, with the recitation of the Shema. When everybody finally was set, set and it's time for worship service began, uh, they would, from memory, recite the Shema. And Now, you may not be familiar with that term, but the Shema is the um, very important part of the Jewish faith and something that Jesus said that we should uh, appreciate and understand. But it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, and beginning at verse 4 and going through verse 9, but the whole congregation as a group would recite, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with, and all your might. And these words that I have commanded you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk with them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise." You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as a frontlet between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, I wouldn't ab- advise that we would do this every Lord's Day, but I think that's something we need to be reminded each and every time we come together on the Lord's Day, that there is only one God, and we should love that, love that God with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, and being. But in the synagogue service, that's the way it always began, as far as we can tell from historical documents and what's being done today, that it always started with the Shema. That was the beginning of the worship service. Once the Shema was said, everybody there knew that the service is now beginning. And after they had the Shema said, they would um, have congregational singing without instruments. And this was something that, of course, was uh, foreign to what the temple was doing. But this wasn't a temple worship service. This was a synagogue worship service. And um, they did not believe that you needed to bring in all the instruments and whatnot. They just had congregational singing uh, that was a cappella, if you will. And so after they had congregational singings, uh, depending on the synagogue and what the day was and what they wanted to observe, they would have a series of prayers followed by the whole congregation saying, "'Amen.'" And so you would have the Shema, you would have the congregational singing, then you would have a series of prayers that would be prayed uh, with the whole congregation agreeing to it. And then you would have the reading of Scripture. And in the synagogue, sometimes these services would last forever because anybody that wanted to read the Scripture could simply let the ruler of the synagogue know that he would like to read Scripture. And he would select the scroll, what he would like to read. In some cases, there would be specific Scripture readings that had been assigned for that particular day and had to be read without exception. But he would read a Scripture, and then if he wanted to, he could give the interpretation of that Scripture. Or in some cases, they needed someone who read the Scripture to interpret it into another language because not everybody, especially during the time period of Jesus Christ, understood Hebrew. So you had a scripture reader, and then there would be someone, either the person who read the scripture himself, or someone else who would be an interpreter, who would give the interpretation of the scripture, or maybe even a literal language interpretation of the scripture, because it would always be in Hebrew. And therefore, uh, you had a period of time of reading scripture. And then finally, uh, after the reading of the scripture, the ruler of the synagogue, and he was the one that was in charge of this, would get up and deliver a sermon. Now, once again, it was kind of an unusual situation because even though he was the ruler of the synagogue, he would not always be the one who would do the preaching. As the ruler of the synagogue, he could come up to you and he could say, I've decided that I want you to preach today. And you were going to preach that day whether you had been prepared to preach or not. Also, someone could come up to the ruler in a synagogue and and they could say, if you don't mind, I would like the opportunity to preach a sermon today. And if it was okay with the ruler, if he knew you and thought that you would present things that were beneficial to the congregation there, uh, that ruler would allow you to do that. So on some Sabbath day uh, synagogue worship services or other times when they meet during the week, Uh, Sometimes the ruler would preach, sometimes someone he had appointed would preach, and sometimes someone that just volunteered to preach. They got the approval of the ruler would preach. And at the conclusion of the sermon, and sometimes these sermons would be very lengthy, uh, people seemed to have uh, more attention span way back then, uh, they would close the service with what we might call a benediction uh, or a prayer. And so that's basically about what the synagogue was how it came about, what it was like, uh, and what um, this worship service was about. Now, once again, keep in mind that uh, this all started because they didn't have a temple. But once the temple was rebuilt, the synagogues continue in existence. They didn't stop them. They still um, had synagogues. So you had two things parallel beside each other. You had the temple for sacrifices And for feast days, but you would have the synagogue as a special place where a congregation or a group of people would come together. Um, In a very similar way today, somebody might say, well, I'm a member of the congregation that meets over here. And somebody says, well, I'm a member of the congregation that meets over here. But on a special Jewish day, they would all come together to go to the temple. Now, it's important that the synagogue existed even while the temple was built, because in 70 A.D., I think we're all aware of what happened when the Roman soldiers surrounded the city of Jerusalem and finally destroyed the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple forever. Well, once again, the Jews found themselves in a predicament because they no longer had a place to worship. All the records were destroyed. There's no way they could come up with a priesthood. Uh, There's no way they could decide who was of the tribe of Levi. Uh, there was no priest that they could uh, perform sacrifices at the same time there was no place to perform sacrifices and so once again the synagogue system kicked in and it kicked in full force in fact the synagogue eventually completely replaced the temple the prayer replaced sacrifice and before long it was the rabbi who replaced the priest and um That's the way it is today. If somebody uh, was to uh, live in our nation as a Jew today, he would still go to the synagogue just simply because of the fact uh, that he can't worship in the, the way that the law prescribed. And the synagogue is a replacement. Now, a question I've often thought about, and no way to prove this, and I might be wrong in this, but if you've ever noticed that our worship service And some of our government and some of the things that we do are tied very closely to the synagogue. Now, first of all, we make sure we understand this point. We do the things that we do in our worship service, not because the synagogue did it, but because we are commanded by God to do it a certain way. Our leadership in the church is the way that it is, not because the synagogue did it, but because God commanded it to be a certain way. Uh, The way that we conduct our worship services, I've already mentioned, the, the five acts of worship that we participate on a given Lord's Day, we do it not because the synagogue did it, but because the Bible commands that we do it. But here's something that I often think about. Think about the transition from being a Jew to becoming a Christian. Think about what would be taking place in a Jewish person's life when they all of a sudden realized that they were no longer under the law of Moses, but now they were under the law of Christ. When they realized that they no longer needed to go to the temple to make sacrifices for their sin, when they realized that Jesus Christ is their once for all sacrifice for atonement when they realize that there's no such thing as a Levitical priesthood any longer because of the fact that we are all priests with Jesus Christ, our high priest. Think about a Jew becoming a Christian and dealing with that particular idea from going from temple worship to Christian worship. Now, once again, I don't know if this was what God had in mind, but I believe personally that we see the providence of God here that God used the synagogue as a way, maybe, don't know this for a fact, but God used the synagogue as a way of transition for people who would one day become Christians. Think about it. They went from being in a temple to worshiping in a synagogue, and then when they became Christians, their synagogue now became not a congregation of Jewish people following Jewish laws, but a congregation of Christians who were worshiping Jesus Christ. Once again, the word synagogue just simply means congregation. And in that congregation now of Christians, they observed that, yes, there were some differences, like the Lord's Supper. They never took the Lord's Supper in the synagogue, but yet the worship service was very similar to what they were used to in the synagogue. There was congregational singing. There was preaching. There was prayers. There was the giving of their means, The only really thing that was different now was that they had a celebration called the Lord's Supper that reminded them of the great price that Jesus Christ paid for them. But yet the transition was kind of smooth. There was not just a big awkwardness about what are we going to do now. As they discover what God's will was for them in the Lord's church, they discovered, yeah, there are some changes that were going to be made. There are some differences in how we go about things, perhaps, and the things that we're going to be talking about is different. And we're no longer under the old law. We're now under the law of Christ. But yet, I believe that God provided the synagogue, which be- began way over the, on the shores of the Babylon River, as kind of a transitional phrase, phase, if you will, to get the Jewish people who one day would become Christians to already have a model that they were going to follow. Let me emphasize again, let somebody go and say, well, the only reason why we do what we do is because of the tradition of the synagogue. No, the Bible is very clear that we pray on the Lord's Day because we're commanded, that we give of our means because it's commanded, that we sing because it's commanded, we preach the word because it's commanded. It's not because it's something that you simply did in the synagogue, but we have a command. Now, it's something that they did, but we have a command, but I think that the transition there is something very important. So we can think about the synagogue, and we can think about it with two different aspects that's important to us now as we live as Christians. First of all, it's historical importance. Anytime we open up our Bibles and look at the life of Jesus Christ, we see the synagogue mentioned. It's important we know what that means. Uh, anytime we open up our Bibles and we read about Uh, Paul traveling from city to city, and the very first place he stops is a synagogue. We can understand and appreciate what was going on in that synagogue, why that synagogue was there and what their worship service was about, and why the apostle Paul, for example, was allowed to speak even though he was a visitor. All he had to simply do is go talk to the ruler and say, Ruler, I would like to speak today. And the ruler could say, well, okay, go ahead, my my brother. I see that you're a fellow Jew. We'll allow you to speak today. Now, oftentimes he'd be thrown out of the synagogue. But that shows you the appreciation, the understanding how Paul got to do that. If I walk into a building today, if I'm traveling, uh, unless the preacher knows me, he might be very wary of the fact if I asked to preach. But Paul could be a complete stranger from another land. But if he talked to the ruler of the synagogue, he would get the opportunity to speak to the people there. But here's the second thing that we need to appreciate about the synagogue. The synagogue makes us appreciate the fact of how we have congregational worship today. When you do away with the temple, when you do away with the ability to to offer sacrifices under the Old Testament dichotomy and the things that were a part of that, what are you left with? You're left with the synagogue or a congregation of God's people just simply meeting together, which takes on even more importance and significance under the New Testament age. And in a lot of ways, it was kind of the go between the the transition from the old Jewish worship that was a part of the temple to the new Christian worship that is now certainly a part of our lives. And as I said, that took a lot of our time this evening, so there's no point entertaining any other questions. But I hope this has been informative to you, and perhaps maybe you've learned something tonight that you're not aware of. Anytime that we stand before you, anytime that we're gathered together, uh, we want to make sure we give everyone the opportunity to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus did die on the cross, he is now our high priest or our mediator, our advocate in heaven. Uh, we're no longer under the lo- old law of Moses, and we're thankful for that. But under the law of Jesus Christ, if you want to become a Christian, you have to obey his commands about... Uh, believing and repenting and confessing and being baptized for the remission of your sins. And if you need assistance in that tonight, we'd be so very happy to help you with that. But we hope tonight, those of us who are Christians, this will strengthen our faith in God and His Son, Jesus Christ, by the information from history that we learn. But also, if you have a need tonight, we certainly want you to respond as together we stand and sing.